welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Vance Havner. His father was an austere but devout Christian. The country preachers always stayed at our house on Saturday before the fourth Sunday in each month when they came by horse and buggy to preach the monthly sermon. Some of those sermons were long enough to last a month and sounded more like filibusters, but it was sound preaching. Father always let me sit up late on those Saturday nights before the open fire and listen to him and the minister talk about things of God. It beat all the television that has been seen since. Today, Vance Havner presents a sermon on David's new cart from 2 Samuel chapter 6. I want to talk to you about David's new cart. And we read from 2 Samuel, the 6th chapter. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey of uh, Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, who was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and psalters and timbrels and cornets and cymbals. When they came to uh, Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach for Uzzah. He called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. That's as far as we'll go for the moment in the reading. David decided to bring the ark to Jerusalem. The Philistines had captured it during the last sad days of Eli. And it had caused so much trouble that they got rid of it, put it on a cart, and returned it, and for a while it stayed in the house of Abinadab. David undertook to bring it to Jerusalem. His motive was good, but his method was wrong. His intentions were good, but his implementation was wrong. God had ordered that the ark was to be carried only on the shoulders of the Levites. David loaded it on a new cart. Drawn by ox. Now he got his idea, no doubt, from the Philistines. And the new card was an expedient borrowed from the enemies of Israel. And on the way, you know this simple story. The oxen stumbled and Uzzah tried to steady it and died. Some people don't think the punishment fits the crime here and they worry about us and why. This strange tragedy has some serious lessons for us today. The church is carrying the ark on a new cart these times. Just as David borrowed the idea from the Philistines, the church today has borrowed from the world many of the vehicles of her ministry. 
We study the techniques of this age, the gadgetry of the business world and the social world and the entertainment world, looking for new cards on which to carry the ark of our testimony. We hold a wet finger up to the air to ascertain which way the popular wind is blowing and set the sails to catch the breeze. And instead of asking how does God do it, we're trying to get ideas from how does the world do it. And we have become religious copycats, mimicking the mannequins of this Punch and Judy show that somebody misnamed progress. But worship is, our worship is streamlined, our preaching slanted, to tickle the ears of a generation that cannot endure sound doctrine. Now, when Uzzah tried to steady the ark, his intention was good. But the whole procedure was wrong to start with. Today, the ark is rocking, and Uzzah is worried, and the brethren are bothered about the unsteadiness of our doctrine and our wavering churches and the unstable swaying of modern Christianity and sincere efforts are being made to stabilize the situation. But it'll end only as Uzzah did in tragedy, for we've started out wrong. And we must give up our new carts and get God's work on the shoulders of separated and dedicated people. Now, what was the sin of Uzzah? Well, don't forget that he was the son of Abinadab. And all his life he had seen the ark in his home. It had become a familiar piece of furniture. The ark had become just a box. He had lost regard for the sacredness of it as a symbol of God's presence among his people. Oh, Matthew Henry said perhaps he affected to show before this great assembly how bold he could make with the ark, having been so long acquainted with it. Familiarity, even with that which is most awful, is apt to breed contempt. Uzzah was a Levite, but he wasn't a priest, and only priests could touch the ark, Numbers 4.15. And then only under certain circumstances. Now, we today are in a very real sense uh, Levites, but not priests. And it's a sad day when the ark becomes a box. When we become so familiar with Scripture and worship and the ordinances that we lose our reverence. Alexander McLaren said, we have a lost sense of awe. Nothing is more delicate than a sense of awe. Trifle with it ever so little, and it speedily disappears. There's far too little of it in our modern religion. Watch the Sunday morning congregation, the average church congregation. You don't see much awe out there. What you see is awful, but not awe. And you hear a lot about relevance, but not much about reverence. You can take God's name in vain in church on Sunday morning. Uh, there's no greater hindrance, it has been said, to true spirituality than a superficial acquaintance with the language of Christianity from childhood. Now, I, I think I know a little something about that. I grew up in a home that was really built on faith in God and in His Word. And we didn't have many books, but I started out on the Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs and Pilgrim's Progress. That's pretty good fare. I started trying to write little pieces about Bible characters. And at 12 years of age, I stood up in the old church and asked to be licensed to preach. 
And uh, I had built up some little acquaintance with uh, some of the facts and figures in the book. But there came a time later on when I had to back myself into a corner and say, Hey, you, is this real? Or is this a language you have learned to recite like a parrot? And I became greatly exercised about that and considerably troubled about it. We can become so accustomed to being Christians and to being preachers even that we place unholy hands on sacred things. Now, our intentions may be good, so are others. But Matthew Henry says again, it will not suffice to say of that which is ill done that it was well meant. That won't excuse it. The problem was that the, not that the oxen stumbled and the cart shook and the ark lurched. There shouldn't have been any oxen. There shouldn't have been any cart to begin with. And no matter how many others tried to steady the ark, were working on the wrong problem, not going to help matters and speed things along by making better carts and hiring more trained others. There are new ways of raising church money, new ways to interest the young people, new ways to increase church attendance, and new styles in church music, and never have there been so many new carts running all over the place, but never has the ark wobbled like it's wobbling now. There's plenty of fanfare in music, and some of it's lamentable, uh, and some of it's certainly not God's idea. I read here in First Chronicles 13:4 that this idea was right in the eyes of all the people. David had the crowd with him, but he didn't have God with him on this. It's possible to put on quite a religious parade and put on a performance instead of having an experience, a form of godliness without the power thereof. A.W. Tozer, who was a prophet, undeniably, said, Evangelical Christianity is now tragically below the New Testament standard. Worldliness is accepted as part of our way of life. Our religious mood is social instead of spiritual. We've lost the art of worship. We're not producing saints. Our models are successful businessmen, celebrated athletes, and theatrical personalities. We carry on our religious activities after the methods of the modern advertiser. Our homes are turned into theaters. Our literature is shallow. Our hymnody borders on sacrilege. And scarcely anyone appears to care. There's no mistaking what he was driving at with language like that. It's David's card all over again. And then there's another angle to this episode. There was something personal about carrying the ark on the shoulders of the Levites. But shifting it to a cart lessened the sense of personal responsibility. Today the Lord's work has become impersonal. We let a machine do a lot of it. Uh, putting our shoulders to the wheel is not the same thing as putting our shoulders under the ark. And too much of our Christian giving has become like feeding nickels in a slot machine in many a church. So much for foreign missions, so much for home missions, so much for this, that, and the other thing. And uh, we have uh, lost the importance of giving self first before service and substance. A lot of fancy carts, and they may take a load off of some shoulders, but you cannot transfer personal responsibility. It may seem more sophisticated to have a new cart. Maybe you can travel quicker, but it actually took them longer to get where they were going this way than if they'd carried it right from the beginning. 
So it's a tragic situation, and I view it. I move from church to church to church. I'm in local churches all the time, and I know a lot about the headaches and the heartaches and these faithful preachers and the things they have to go through. Oh, there ought to be a special reward in heaven for the ridiculous things that some pastors are expected to do by some church members. What's wearing preachers out is not the real work of the Lord, but doing a lot of things some folks think they ought to do that God never asked them to do to begin with. And they wear themselves to a frazzle. Uh, they can saddle off some of the oddest jobs on a preacher. You know, he's the one that has to take the blame. I heard of one some time ago. There was an old boy in that church who, well, he just, he just, he just wasn't all there. Just, uh, just, and he couldn't sing, but he wanted to sing in the choir. Now, what are you going to do with a case like that? And they argued among themselves, sure enough, settled it off on the preacher. Now, you go and talk to him about it. And he just loves things like that, you know. So he said, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, we're going to have to ask you not to sing anymore in the choir. How come, he said. Well, uh, you, you, you really can't sing. Who said so? Well, he said... Uh, I've heard several people say so. How many said so? I said, I've heard seven or eight. He said, that ain't nothing. I've heard 50 say you can't preach. <laughs> so preachers get in a terrible fix and are required to do all kinds of perfectly ridiculous things. So, I try to call a convocation wherever I go and preach for old-fashioned revival and try to get God's people to realize one thing, and this is the heart of the message tonight. God's people, God's work must be done by God's people, God's way. God will accept nothing else, whatever. Now, sanctify yourselves that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ is not an old Adam improvement society. And people who have never died to sin and risen to walk in newness of life are walking down church aisles rededicating themselves and they could do it a thousand times. God cannot use the old Adam no matter how many times he rededicates himself. There are some verses ought to be hung up in every Sunday school room of every church. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. No flesh can glory in his presence. They that are born in the Spirit cannot perfect themselves in the flesh. In Exodus 30, the anointing oil for the priests had three restrictions. Upon man's flesh it should not be poured. You're not to compound anything like it. No imitations, no substitutes. And don't put any of it on a stranger. The holy unction from above is not produced in any of the apothecaries of this world. Trying to make old Adam into a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, or a preacher, is an abomination unto the Lord. You can't do it, just can't be done. David finally came to his senses, and in First Chronicles 15, he recognized that the ark should have been carried only by the Levites, as Deuteronomy 10:8 and 31:1 said. Today we need to learn that lesson in the church. In Acts 7, men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom were chosen for serious responsibilities in the church. Just because a lawyer talks all week does not necessarily qualify him to teach the Bible class 
unless he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. It's all right to talk all week, but uh, uh, that won't do it. And just because a banker handles money all week does not of itself qualify him to be the church treasurer. And just because some lady has got a diploma from a music conservatory and can sing so high that Lily Pons couldn't have sung bass to it, does not qualify her for singing to the glory of God unless she's been filled with the Holy Spirit. You just can't run a church like a department store. It would be comical if it weren't so tragic the way we plunge in all directions today trying to popularize the gospel. The Ichabod Memorial Church calls in a folk musical. And the church at Ephesus has a TV celebrity. And Pergamos has somebody who can play a fiddle and beat drums and uh, play a harmonica all at the same time. And the church at Sardis, not to be outdone, says we're going to have Aunt Dinah's quilting party. Everybody dressed like you did a hundred years ago and we'll all see Nellie home. And so here they come. And over at Laodicea, they have a talking horse. You've heard me tell in times past about one they had trained. How many commandments? And he stomped ten times. How many apostles? Stamped twelve. And some smart aleck in the crowd said, How many hypocrites in this church? And he went into a dance on all fours. (laughs) And they say we need a new lingo in the church today. Used to be a problem, now it's a hang-up. Used to be a blessing, and now it's a meaningful experience, whatever that is. Used to be uh, a lot of things that it isn't anymore. We must be relevant and communicate with the now and steady the spectrum and find fulfillment and involvement and get down to the nitty-gritty. I've always wondered what is the (laughs) nitty-gritty. And we've got new names for it. It doesn't help. They used to call it itch, and now they call it allergy, but you scratch just the same. <laughs> New names won't do it. That isn't going to help the situation. Every time the world comes along with something new, here comes the church trotting along after trying to get some ideas. Uh, we need, we, we think we have to have something new all the time. We need something so old that it'd be new if anybody tried it in the church of the living God today. I'm glad I represent some things that are mighty old. Why, the son's old, but no substitute has been found. Heirs old, no substitute. Water's old-fashioned, no substitute. And Jesus spoke of things you have to have, bread and water and salt and light, the common necessities of life. He used them as figures. And you've, you've read about Ezekiel's vision of the bones the valley of dry bones, bones, body, and breath. I make good outline for any sermon. Every sermon ought to have bones, body, and breath. It ought to have an outline. It ought to have body to it, but unless the breath of God blows across it, you still don't have a message. And every church ought to have the bones of organization that has its place, have body of membership, but unless the breath of God blows across it, you don't have anything after all. So musicians were added here. David added some uh, new music. And the church has fallen into something of the same trap. Uh, Let the world sing its own songs. We have a better song to sing 
The gospel singing ought to start from the heart. There's a place for art indeed, but making melody in your hearts unto the Lord. Today they say we're stupid if we're not acquainted with the top 40. I'd hate to hear the bottom 40 today. (laughs) Finally, everything was in order and David started again. It was a time of great rejoicing. It always is when God's people get right. But there was one person who didn't enjoy this event, and it was David's wife, Michael. She had bad blood in her veins. She despised him, met him with satire and scorn, and suffered the shame of barrenness for the rest of her life. I want to ask you tonight, as you go back to your churches and you say you've had a blessing up here, now you're going back, I hope, to a local church, because you work in a local church, and that's the way it ought to be. And uh, if you go back to it, go back in a true spirit, I pray, not as a super saint. Uh, you, you don't have to wear a great big button that says, I'm a Christian, carry a Bible big as a Sears and Roebuck catalog in order to impress him. But if you've got it, the word will get around. And folks will find it out. You don't have to convince them. Just be what you are in Christ Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, he says. All right, be what you are. You're the light of the world, just be what you are. You don't have to go around like a man with a flashlight, I want you to know I'm a Christian. Just just be what you are. And they'll find it out. Uh, God's people. Are you one of God's people? Let me say tonight, if you're what you've always been, you're not a Christian. Because a Christian something new. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Now, you may not have known the day, the day and hour of your conversion. Some dear people get awfully worried about those things. While you're trying to stir up folks that think they're saved when they're not, you always stir up some dear nervous people who are saved but are afraid they're not. And so we have to be careful along that line. But... Uh, Let me say to you tonight, if you're troubled with insecurity and a lack of assurance, you don't have to be like that. A dear lady wrote to old Alexander White and said, I just can't feel like I want to feel. Am I saved or am I not? He answered, dear lady, when the serpent was lifted up out there in the wilderness, there were several hundred thousand people out there. And the fellow in the back row may not have been able to discern the outline of the snake on the pole. But he said, God didn't say see. God said look. You say, what's the difference? There's a lot of difference. If you don't understand all about it, thank God you don't. If the plan of salvation could be understood with my little brain, there wouldn't be much to it. I'm not supposed to understand it. I'm going to stand on it. Don't understand it. Don't understand electricity. Not going to be sit around in the dark till I do. And so get out on what you do understand. W.A. Criswell of Dallas tells us, and I wouldn't tell the illustration if he hadn't himself spoken of a time when he started out as a minister and, and did not have assurance as he, like he should have had. And I asked him later as we rode along, I said, tell me about it. Yep, he said. I'd stand up to preach in the morning and the evening and be on my knees trying to, he wanted to feel saved. 
God didn't say anything about that. He said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt feel saved. Doesn't say it. Thou shalt be saved. And he said, I finally got to where I said, Lord, I can't, I can't work up a feeling. I can't uh, feel like I want to. But the book says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. There's where I stand. And at the judgment day, there's where I'm going to be standing. I'm going to say, Lord, that's where I am. And that's what you said do. And anybody who hears him now realizes he's not lacking in assurance any more than Barnhouse was in certainty. Barnhouse was always sure about what he was talking about. A.W. Tozer used to say, I wish I could be as certain of one thing as Barnhouse is about everything. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful thing to be sure. And if you're a little shaky, though, oh, the soul for refuge to Jesus have fled. He's not going to desert you to his foes. And so... Uh, as this same Alexander White said, throw yourself in the general direction of Jesus Christ. I like that. If that doesn't sound clear enough for you, there have been times in my life when it was a great comfort. Get old H.A. Ironside's book on full assurance. He worked for years trying to feel right and never did. All the way from the Salvation Army to the Plymouth Brethren, that man went in his experience, but he came to rest on the Word of God for his certainty. Have you ever backed yourself into a corner and asked yourself, why do I do what I do at church? Why? Hebrews 13 tells you very plainly uh, the way the thing ought to go. Have you noticed that in uh, chapter 13 it begins in verse 12 with a wherefore, and then it moves in the next verse to a therefore? Jesus kept his wherefore, we're supposed to keep our therefore, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Now here's where we come in. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. That's the first move. That's us. That's person. Uh, for we have here no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him therefore... Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's when you sing. You've been doing that here tonight. And then verse 16 is when they take up the offering. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And then number 17 is your duty to the preacher. And if you're inclined to criticize him, obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You have a certain duty and responsibility to the house of God, to the work of God, and to the man of God. I remember one time my father, dear soul that he was, spoke a bit critically against a preacher, and God put him under conviction. And I remember hearing him say, Never again will I lift my hand against God's anointed. The lesson some folks have never learned is yet. I think of that little old shoeshine man who had his little place in the lower floor of a business building. And that little black man was respected by all the businessmen there. They knew that he loved God. And he had a Bible with him and he wasn't ashamed of it and it was usually open. One day one of the businessmen came along and said, Well, I see you're looking in Revelation today. Yes. Said, do you understand the book of Revelation? What it's about? Yes. He said, now wait a minute. 
said, we got Bible scholars everywhere that disagree about the meaning of the book of Revelation. What do you think it means? You, you think you understand what it means? Yes. What do you think it means? He says it means Jesus is going to win. Now you could get 500 theologians together and they wouldn't come up with anything better than that. That's what it means. He's already won at Calvary in that open grave you've been hearing about all week. Uh, our water loose behind us. We're just engaged in mopping up exercises now. But we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. Seeing him, we know that we're a winner. I got a letter from Jack Wurtson last week, and he always signs it. Yours on the victory side. It's a good side to be on. Can't lose on that side. And as you go forth, go in love. I had a little country church a long time ago. And they've asked me to come back for homecoming day in the fall, and I don't see how I work it, but I'm just obliged almost to go. And uh, I found that I had been preceded by some preachers of considerable note, one particularly who found his wife there and became quite a preacher. But I never heard much about any of them but Josiah Elliott. And he'd been way back a plain preacher who gave away just about everything he had to help boys go through school and get right, you know, prepare for the uh, work of God. So I said, well, i got to find out about Josiah Elliott. Now I went back to my farmer friend, John Brown. I've missed John Brown since he went to heaven. Just a plain farmer. But we like to talk about the things of God. I'd be over there. I should have been visiting. He should have been plowing. And we'd stand there all afternoon and talk about other things. Next morning I'd come back. We never said good morning. Always took up where we'd left off the day before. But I said, John, I, I want to ask you something. I've been here a while now, and all I hear about is Josiah Elliott. What is the secret of the hidings of his power? How did he get such a grip around here on these people? John didn't have much to say, but what he said was usually pretty important. So he was still for a moment, leaned on the plow handles, and then looked at me and said, Well, mm, he just loved this. And that's all he said, went on plowing. And there I stood and I made my way back through those old cypresses while the wood thrush was singing that evening his vespers to the end of a perfect day. But chiming in my heart were those words, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love. I'm a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And I said, good God, help me to live in that 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians the rest of my days and love the people that I'm trying to help. Love the people with whom you work and something will happen. Pray for me, won't you? People keep asking me to tell about it over again before I sit down. Some years ago in Pennsylvania, a long time ago, I had meetings in a Presbyterian church with a preacher who's now pastor of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian in New York City. He wrote a book, Home Before Dark. I don't remember a great deal about the book, but that title grabbed me. It's been one of my ambitions from then on, and one of my prayers, Lord, I'd like to get home before dark. And I mean to that, 
Number one, I'd like to go before my physical faculties fail. That may not be God's way. All that's in God's hands. I don't understand it all. Don't ask me to explain it all. God's running that end of the line. But you can't help asking, and that's all right. God's your Father. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. Your daddy gave you what you needed, but there are some things he gave you wouldn't he given you if he hadn't known that you wanted it and asked for it. Now, God knows what you need, but he says ask. My friend Pappy Reveal of the Evansville Rescue Mission, who knew the Lord, if any man ever did, and he could get anybody from Billy Sunday to Billy Graham and all other preachers to come there because they loved to be with Pappy because he knew the Lord. Just a plain man. And he had a prayer, Lord, I'm going to make a quick getaway. And he got it. He was a cripple and he was shaving in bed and his wife came in to call him to breakfast and he shaved one side and laid the razor down and went on to heaven. I like to go like that. Go to bed in this world, wake up in glory, but uh, God doesn't always do that. No harm putting your name in. Then I'm going to say, Lord, now, if, that, if that, that doesn't suit you, why, don't let me make some big blunder near the end of the way. If you're saved, you're saved, but you're never saved as far as your testimony is concerned. There's always a danger that you may make that blunder the last mile of the way, and they remember it and forget every blessed thing you did back up the road. That's human nature. My old daddy used to, when I started out as a boy, he'd go with me, because I was only 12, and for a year or two he went with me, and then I'd ride the train, go by myself, and he'd meet me at the train when he came in. I can see him beside that little old cheap Ford Roadster he had, that old blue serge suit never had been pressed since the day he bought it. And if I'd go up to him, he'd always ask me one question, how'd you get along? And I'd tell him. We always had a rule at home when I was little that I was to get home before sundown. That was understood. We didn't have to argue about it. We didn't dialogue much back in those days. Father did a lot of monologuing and we said amen to it, but not much dialogue. It's been a long time since I've seen Dad. One of these days when the train rounds the last curve into Grand Central Station. And he's there and he'll be there, not in the old blue serge suit, but in the robes of the glory of God. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the first thing you'll say would be, how'd you get along? And I'm going to say pretty well, Dad, and then as we walk down the golden streets, I'm going to nudge him. I'm going to say, remember when I had to be home by sundown? Well, bless God, we've both made it. And home before dark. And may you have that experience too, by the grace of God. You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.